The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the life and times of Louis Braille and how the Braille Revival League promotes Braille as a necessary tool for literacy. But first, ACB Reports for January 2007 begins with this important announcement. On November 28, 2006, Judge James Robertson in the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia issued a declaratory judgment on a motion filed by the American Council of the Blind finding the United States Department of Treasury in violation of Section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act for failing to provide accessible print currency in a format usable by blind and visually impaired Americans and directing the Department of the Treasury to enter into discussions with the American Council of the Blind to work out a currency design that will enable individuals who are blind or who have severe sight loss to be able to identify bills by touch and other accessible means. The ruling is the culmination of a lawsuit against the Treasury Department brought by ACB in 2002. This is a major milestone for the blind and visually impaired of America, said Melanie Brunson, ACB Executive Director. The ability to handle a person's financial affairs independently and in private is an essential part of being a productive member of society. This is the most significant case ever won where we have been able to force a major federal agency to act responsibly within the constraints of federal laws designed to protect our rights, explained Christopher Gray, president of the American Council of the Blind. This is a landmark decision, said Jeffrey Levitke, the attorney representing ACB, and it will have a positive impact on millions of Americans. To no one's surprise, the Department of Treasury has appealed the decision, and this appeal is expected to be heard in mid-January. ACB Reports will provide more information about this case as it develops. Many people remember Michael Meller as a former editor of Matilda Ziegler magazine. His latest project is a definitive book entitled Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius. At the 2006 convention of the American Council of the Blind, Mr. Meller received the Vernon Henley Media Award from the ACB Board of Publications. This award, named in memory of the creator and first host of ACB Reports, recognizes outstanding media work relating to blindness. Mr. Meller talked about his book at the convention assembly. Louis Braille. To get him in context, you know, he was born a long time ago, in 1809. That was the same year Abraham Lincoln was born. He was born in a little town called Couvray, that's C-O-U-P-V-R-A-Y, which is about 25 miles east of Paris. In those days, that was really very rural. To get to Paris from Couvray, when Braille was born, was a four-hour journey in a stagecoach. Louis was born in the kitchen of the house where they lived, and his mother, Monique, which is Monica, was 39, which in those days was close to middle age. They already had two girls and two boys in the family. Louis was the youngest, and his father, Simon René, was then 44. So he was probably an unexpected child, and the parents hoped that he would become their support in old age. They were 
A family of modest means, they weren't poor, but they weren't rich either. The father made his living as what was called in French a bourrelier, which means he made the leather harness, the straps and so on, that were used to capture the power of the horse. These harnesses were not just simply a few straps thrown together, they really were works of art. Very often the leather had intricate patterns carved into it. So Louis Braille's father was very much a perfectionist and an artist. And Louis Braille, we think, inherited some of these characteristics. He was certainly a perfectionist. The family was very self-reliant, and again, Louis Braille was. They um, had some income, of course, from the uh, harness-making business, but they also had their own cow, they had some chickens, they had a vineyard, from which they produced enough wine to keep them going for a year. And that was stored in a big cask in the cellar of the house. When Louis was only three years old, he had a bad accident, and that is what blinded him. Uh, he was sitting in his father's workshop, trying to copy what his father did. And Louis picked up a piece of leather, and also a small curved blade, a very sharp blade, almost like a miniature pruning hook. And we think he was trying to perhaps carve some kind of pattern in the leather, and he was holding the leather very close to his eye. The tool slipped and sliced his right eye open. So it bled badly, he would have been in quite severe pain. And of course in those days, no one knew what to do. An old woman from the village applied lily water to the wound. That just might have made it worse by infecting the wound even more. Within two years, his other eye became blind too. And that is often described as just because the other eye became infected. But that probably is not what happened. This was a condition known as sympathetic ophthalmia, where the undamaged eye becomes blind too. Modern science now thinks it was a case of the immune system trying to repair the damaged eye, went awry and began to damage the healthy eye. So after about two years, his right eye was totally opaque and his left eye was partially opaque but had a few blue streaks in it from what was left of the blue part of the eye. He had blue eyes and blonde hair. Braille loved the town he was born in, and since the family was very well known, because all the farmers came to his father to get their harnesses either made or repaired, they were very fond of Louis Braille. Now, it so happens that there were two other blind people in the town. There, one was in his 60s, one was in his 40s. Both were destitute. Now, we don't know whether this affected the uh, Braille family's attitude towards their little boy, but they were determined that he would receive an education. And so, shortly after he became blind, the local priest uh, took him uh, under his care and began to teach him in an office of the local church, St. Peter's. And also, when the summer weather was there, Louis received lessons outside. And Louis was very bright. He learned very quickly. So after about a year of being taught by the priest, uh, the priest asked the local school teacher if he would accept Braille into the local school. So he was mainstreamed back in 1812. Again, in school, he was very bright. He often outshone the sighted kids. And in fact, the teacher recorded that sometimes he was dumbfounded by the responses by turns pertinent and amusing of Louis Braille. However, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, everything was changed. And they tried to introduce a new system of teaching in the local school of Couvray. Louis' parents didn't like this because they tended to be uh, on the conservative side. They were not 
pro-revolutionary. They liked the old-fashioned ways of speaking, the old-fashioned ways of behaving. And they remained devout Catholics all their lives, as did Louis Braille. So when they tried to change the teaching system in the local school, the parents wanted to find some other way of getting an education. By one of those fortunate chances that actually occur very frequently in Louis Braille's life, the local teacher had heard of a school in Paris, a new school, that would give an education to blind children. Furthermore, the local lord of the manor, uh, Monsieur Dorvilliers, had in fact helped to finance this school when it was founded in about 1786 by a man called Valentin Aoui, of whom probably you've heard. We think it was probably by these kinds of contacts that Louis Braille was admitted to the school in Paris, and he entered there in um, 1819. Although the school gave him an excellent education, in fact, it also killed him because the school was extremely unhealthy. It was located right down near the River Seine. Uh, It was damp. It was cold. For kids who walked around the building, touching the walls to navigate, uh, the walls were damp and slimy. The water they used for drinking and also for bathing just came right out of the river. And the river was very contaminated because garbage was just tossed into the river. He was a very bright student. And he also showed musical talent while at the school. One year, uh, he won a whole batch of prizes. I know he won a prize for cello, for geography, for math, uh, for writing an essay. And the prizes he won were piled up on the bench beside him where he was sitting. Now, he was about five feet nine tall, and these books and documents piled higher than little Louis Braille himself. There was a, a report from the government about the health of the students at the school. It said... The first thing that struck us was the deathly white complexion of most of the students. Several showed signs of scrofula, that's tuberculosis, which is what Louis Braille got, and some even have swollen glands. Many, especially the girls, have poor digestions, a condition rare among adolescents, and whose cause we can find in the building and surrounding area. So we can't prove it but it's pretty certain that that is where Louis Braille caught tuberculosis. So he was sick, really, from the time he entered the school. But it was not until 1835, when he was 26, that he realized what was wrong when he had a bad coughing spell and coughed up blood. There was the evidence that he had TB. The students had a 15-hour day there, uh, which included intellectual work, music, manual skills. Uh, They had meals, there was recreation, and religious devotions. The head of the school tried to teach the children uh, skills that would be useful where they lived. So, for instance, the students who lived in a port town would learn rope making. At one time, uh, whips were made at the school, although that didn't prove very profitable, and that was soon stopped. They also made mats that sold very well, uh, knitting, which was uh, sold in shops in Paris. And Louis Braille, uh, showing leadership skills as well as manual skills, at the age of 14, became the foreman of the slipper workshop. This is how the director described Louis Braille. Endowed with a great facility, with a lively intelligence, and above all, with a remarkable soundness of mind, Braille became well known for his progress and success in his studies. His literary or scientific compositions included nothing but precise thoughts, They were distinguished by a great clarity of ideas expressed in a clear and correct style. In 1820, Louis Braille's life changed. A man called Barbier, Charles Barbier, who was a military captain, arrived at the school with this system 
that he had invented for use by the military. It consisted of, to speak in braille terms, which was not, didn't exist then, uh, this was raised darts in a 12-dot cell, two columns of six darts. And he hoped that he could sell this system to the military because it could be read by touch and written by touch. So the soldiers wouldn't have to light a lamp and thereby reveal their position. Louis Braille was given samples of this code to see what it was like. Because by this time, there was a new director of the school, a man named Pinier, who became very important to Louis Braille. And he, in a very open-minded way, said the only people who can tell if this system is any good are the blind children themselves. So they took samples home and they could work with it. The code actually was not very good. It was not based on the alphabet, so there was no spelling, there was no punctuation, no grammar, no numbers, and it was impossible to write music with it. But Louis Braille went home and he worked on this, this code and he brought out the improvements that we know to this day. It has not changed basically since he completed it, his code, in 1824, when he was only 15. Uh, I actually think he did this because he was young and no one had told him what you were not supposed to do. He didn't know what he wasn't supposed to do. In fact, it reminds me of Helen Keller saying, while they were saying it was impossible, it was done. Louis Braille didn't know any better, so he changed the whole code. Later on, Barbier, who had invented uh, his code, praised Louis Braille very highly. He said, I cannot praise too highly the kind of feelings which prompt you to be useful to those who share your misfortune. Much can be expected of the enlightened sentiments which guide you. When he was 19, Louis Braille was appointed a teacher at the school. He taught grammar and geography to both sighted and blind children. The sighted children came to the school for free, got a free education. In return for that, they had to help the blind people in guiding them around, helping reading to them, and also working in the printing shop. Five years later, he was promoted to full teacher, which gave him a pay increase. Louis Braille was very good with money. He lived uh, carefully. He saved money. He even lent money out to other students when they were running short. Also, when he was promoted, he was enabled to wear a special uniform, which was a dark blue, and had on the lapels silk or gilt laurel wreaths, which uh, were symbols of learning. And he liked to wear the uniform when he walked around Paris and when he was going out to play the organ. He walked around confidently, we are told that, in some of the research I've done, and often put his hand on the shoulder of a, of a young boy, a teenage boy, who would guide him through the streets. He was a very popular teacher. Uh, again, let me quote you briefly. He functioned as a teacher with such charm and wisdom that for his students, the requirement to attend class was transformed into a pleasure. They competed among themselves, not only to be equal to or better than each other, but to make a sincere and continuous effort to please their teacher, whom they loved as a wise and enlightened friend, overflowing with good advice. And he did indeed help people. Again, his practicality, which I think came from his rural background in a very practical family. On one occasion, a friend of his uh, who got a pension from one of the charities in Paris was not getting the best of it. And Louis Braille figured out how he could, by going to the various places, get a few more francs in exchange for this. It must have been some kind of money order in which the pension was paid. In 1831, Louis Braille's father died. And from his deathbed, the father, in a letter that was written by Louis Braille's brother, asked Dr. Pinier, the director of the school, not to abandon Louis Braille. And Dr. Pinier said that request was answered even before it was asked. And from that time on, Dr. Pinier, the head of the school, was like Louis Braille's substitute father. 
And he was very important in introducing Braille to some of the uh, higher echelons of Parisian society. He would take Braille out to, you know, fairly fancy parties, and Braille would play the piano so well, uh, playing Mozart, for instance, and often the people there were moved to tears. But Louis didn't like that because he didn't like to feel pitied. Uh, my book also has a chapter devoted to Braille music, which I have to say I knew nothing about pretty much before I started to write it, but I was able to get some good advice from people in the field. Because Louis Braille was very musically talented, played the organ in some of the leading churches in Paris. Uh, in 1829, he'd figured out the system. I'm sure some of you here use it, and it hasn't changed basically since then. Also, around that time, he seemed to want to change his job as teacher. He was offered the job or applied for the job as organist in the Cathedral of Meaux, which is not too far from where he was born. In the end, he turned it down because he didn't pay enough money. Uh, but also, it would have uh, required him to uh, make a bit extra money by going around the area tuning pianos, and he was a trained piano tuner, but he would have had to live as a seminarian presumably in some kind of dormitory. And since being promoted to teacher, he had his own room at the School for the Blind. I must mention one achievement that has been largely forgotten. He was very concerned uh, about finding some way that the blind children could communicate with sighted people. Remember, many of them came from outside Paris. They had really no means of communicating with their friends and families back home. So Louis invented a system which was based on a dot, very much like the Braille dot, whereby people could write the shapes of print letters on a sheet of paper. The shapes were rather large, so you couldn't get more than a few words on a page, but it did work, and both sighted people and blind people could read it. But the big step that was made was uh, when he uh, talked to his friend Victor Foucault, who actually miniaturized this system and enabled a blind person by using various pistons uh, to position dots in a 10 by 10 matrix to form the shape of letters and the shape was about the size of ordinary print. At first it just made holes in the paper which both sighted people could read and blind people could read it by touch too but later on Louis Braille himself figured out it was better to use carbon paper so that a carbon copy was used, a nice black copy that was easier for sighted people to read. And some of his letters in that format uh, still exist and they're perfectly clear to read and they are exactly a dot matrix printer. So he invented the dot matrix printer. In 1840, there was another disturbing event in Louis Braille's life. Because of internal politics in the School for the Blind, Dr. Pinier was fired. I don't know how many of you work in academic life. I did many years ago and didn't like it, but it is said that in academic life, the infighting is so severe because the stakes are so low. <laughs> but anyway, this was true in Paris, and Dr. Pinier's deputy, a man called Armand Dufault, plotted with the politicians to have Dr. Pinier fired. So Louis Braille lost his mentor on the scene. But Dufault went beyond that. He actually banned the use of Braille within the school. This was in part simply a sort of vengeance against uh, Braille's protector, Dr. Pinier, because Pinier um, was regarded as being too religious by Dufault, who was a secularist and a Republican. And the evidence against Dr. Pinier was one of the first documents to be published in Braille was the Lord's Prayer in several languages. Dr. Pinier also encouraged the students to play the organ. It was a good career, but that meant going to church, and Dufault didn't quite like that idea very much. And the first book to be produced uh, in Braille was, in fact, the three-volume history of uh, France, and that was written by priests. So in the mind of Dufault and some of the politicians, this was not acceptable. So poor Louis Braille lost his support at the school. This upset him greatly. 
And all this time, of course, his health was deteriorating, and it was a very hard time for him. In 1844, a new school for the blind opened, and Louis Braille was actually present at that ceremony, and there, finally, his code got official recognition. One of the deputy teachers at the school, who knew nothing about educating blind people, noticed that the children preferred to use Braille. So he gave a demonstration at this big public opening of the school, and Braille was officially accepted as being the system at the School for the Blind. In December 1851, Louis Braille, whose health had been so bad he often couldn't perform his teaching duties, he entered the infirmary at the Institute after a very bad spell of bleeding and what were called frightening symptoms. The next day was a little bit, little bit better, and he said something I just want to read out to you. He said, yesterday was one of the most beautiful and greatest days of my life. When you have experienced that, you understand all the majesty of religion. I have tasted the supreme delights. I am convinced that my mission on earth has been accomplished. It is true, I asked God to carry me away from the world, but I felt I did not ask very strongly. So even in close to death, he still had a sense of humor. Uh, he died the next year on January 6th at the age of 43. And so passed away this great benefactor to blind people throughout the world. There's much more about him in the book, which is titled Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius. And it's published in uh, Braille, four volumes, and there's also a print edition. So I hope you've learned a little bit more about Louis Braille. There's much more in the book. Thank you very much. That was Michael Meller, recorded at the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in Jacksonville, Florida, July 2006. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. The Braille Revival League is a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. As its name implies, this group focuses on all things Braille. Lynn Corral of Anchorage, Alaska, is the League's current president. I asked her how the Braille Revival League began. My understanding from uh, one of the founders is it was probably 1981 or so. And I think that the purpose was uh, to promote Braille use and to make sure that Braille was still in a prominent position for those people who are blind or in the teaching professions of people who are blind. As we know today, many of the transcribers are getting older and older, and therefore there is a real need for transcribers of Braille. Of course, with the advent of computer technology, Braille can be produced much more efficiently. But nevertheless, I think there is a need for the Braille Revival League, and actually there are some people who doubted whether there is a need for the Braille Revival League about the time that I became president two and a half years ago, saying perhaps it had outgrown its usefulness. But I don't think so. I think Braille is still something that is a necessary tool for reading and writing and literacy and comprehension. What are the biggest challenges facing readers of Braille? I think the biggest challenges are, number one, that Braille may be changing. One wouldn't think that Braille is a political entity, but unfortunately, almost everything is. So Braille has become an entity whereby, for instance, you now have it, in a way, exploited to a certain extent by companies that use it on even wine bottles and uh, other sorts of places where Braille is now more widely used in jewelry and um, where it actually becomes a fashion statement. 
And I think some of the challenges in Braille are with older people who are trying to learn Braille where they um, are not as likely because of either previous learning experiences or their tendency to understand print and not understand Braille or with their dexterity or their issues with diabetes and neuropathy where they can't use Braille. And therefore, Braille is not really taught as much as computers. I think the biggest threat to Braille right now believe it or not, despite the fact that computers have made Braille more available, is computers. People think that you don't need Braille now if you're going blind because you have computers and screen reading technology that will actually deliver speech output to an individual. Do you have to know Braille to be a member? Oh, no. I think in any of our affiliates, the American Council of the Blind, you can support the work of uh, an affiliate. Of course, the Braille Revival League is what we call a special interest affiliate meaning that it's not a geographic designation by state, but it is a special interest affiliate. Like, as you know, Mr. Duke, you have the Radio Amateurs, also a special interest affiliate, and other sorts of special interest affiliates that cater to a specific interest. That was the brainchild of Derwood McDaniel, who decided that there were people that would want to get together for an affiliated purpose, which is where they agree that they'd get together. Each year at the National Convention of the American Council of the Blind, the Braille Revival League has a program session that usually expands over two or three afternoons. Tell us some of the things that go on during those sessions. We really have very excellent speakers. We've had a session where we learned about NUBS, which is the Nemeth Unified Braille System, and um, one of the um, political issues of changing Braille. Every year we have a banner report, which is the Braille Authority of North America, usually given by Kim Charlson, and we may have other people who share some of the committees of the BANA board. And BANA is the group that sets the Braille rules, is that right? Exactly. Sets the standards for Braille and any changes to Braille formatting and textbooks and different committees and uh, are very complex issues of the formatting of Braille and changes in Braille. Like I say, it's actually pretty political. And so the Braille Authority of North America uh, is the North American version of other Braille political groupings internationally. Last year we had a Braille bunko. Uh, that was one of our fundraising mechanisms. We've also had uh, discussions on Braille music. Judy Dixon always comes from the National Library Service and talks about some of their initiatives and web Braille and those sorts of things. We once had a game of figure out this contraction, that contraction, those sorts of things. We've had different kind of puzzles. And we usually have people who represent the location where we're visiting. So we may have somebody, hopefully, when we are in Minneapolis, from uh, any of the Minneapolis organizations that produce Braille or Braille production houses, we'll have National Braille Press and different avenues where either Braille production, Braille literacy, or any of those things are taught or of concern to Braille readers and writers. How many members are in the Braille Revival League right now? I knew you were going to ask. Somewhere over 200. And you know what amazes me is we have 1,500 people or so who expressed concern about Web Braille's continuation. And I don't know why there aren't 1,000 members of Braille Revival League, whether they're teachers or transcribers or those sorts of people, because there are a lot of people who are concerned with Braille who are not members of the Braille Revival League. But I believe it would be useful for people to join the Braille Revival League so that we did have more voices that we could draw them. Talk a little bit about Braille Literacy Month. Was that something that the Braille Revival League helped establish? And what happens during Braille Literacy Month, which is traditionally January? I don't know how it got established. I don't think it was just the Braille Revival League initiative. It certainly was spurred on by the Braille Revival League. And I think it's a way to let legislators know, let the public know what Braille is and how Braille is used. 
there was a time when we had Braille literacy packets because of Kim Charlson, who is our editor for our newsletter, which comes out three times a year. She had put those packets together, Braille cards and all sorts of Braille material, Braille bookmarks. There are all sorts of things that people use for showing people what Braille is, where Braille is, and uh, what it's useful for, what it's used for labeling, etc. I use the Braille alphabet cards a great deal when I go speak to schools. I just did that the other day, as a matter of fact, spoke to a school and brought Braille alphabet cards. So that's Braille literacy. But that's basically a way to get out to the public the usefulness of Braille and how Braille is used and to give them a little bit of awareness about it. That was Braille Revival League President Lynn Corral. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.